please stand if you're able from reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Please read with me both verses because they're all in bold. <laughs> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite things about grace that I'm reminded of every Every Sunday, and particularly if, if you've missed a Sunday or whatnot, it's just the, just the team. How many people um, are leading us in worship each Sunday, both on the platform and, and behind the scenes? It's good to be a part of the body. As I said, my name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. I bring you um, greetings from Pastor Daniel. Daniel is uh, preaching at a sister church this morning in Fremont, uh, California, a church that uh, he helps um, Oversee, and uh, and I think I think he's uh, preaching this week uh, the the sermon from our sermon series last week. We're in a series called uh, the Way of the Cross, and on Sunday mornings we have been considering the meaning of Jesus's cross, uh, his death and his his sacrifice for us. What does it mean, and what uh, action or response is that calling us to? This morning, this. This verse about a living sacrifice, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, as, as part of that meaning. So full disclosure, um, Daniel, co-pastor, uh, my partner in crime, Daniel is a, a generous gift giver. Uh, it might be more accurate to say that the whole Yoon family are generous gift givers. I'm not sure exactly where the epicenter of the generosity is. Uh, but over the, pa over the past few Christmases, the Carpenter family has had to up our game to try to keep up with the generosity. Typically, uh, at Christmas time, I would stop by the store on the way to work, maybe get a nice Christmas card, put a family picture of the carpenters in it and deliver it to Daniel, at which time he would open his trunk and have a whole trunk full of gifts, gifts for my kids and gifts for my wife. This last year, uh, the Yoon family gave us a board game for the entire family, a cozy blanket for Olivia and Daniel, I should have brought him up here, Daniel gave me one of those fancy fobs for your key that lets your phone find your keys. Really generous, right? Maybe he was just tired of helping me look for my keys, but um, I think I got him a gift card. And it was already like in the envelope and sealed up. He had it in his possession while I was opening all of these presents. And I'm like, what do you do, right? Can I get that back? I'm going to slip another hundred in there <laughs> before I give it to you. It's too late. Uh, what do you do um, in that situation? What do you do in a situation like that? What kind of present do you give to someone who gives exorbitant and generous and undeserved gifts to you? How do you respond? That's essentially the question 
that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is answering or, or beginning to answer uh, in the book of Romans. On Sundays in Lent, we've been, we've been looking at the meaning of the cross, and this morning I'm hoping that Romans 12, 1 and 2 will help us begin to answer that question. What do you give someone? Or more specifically, what do you give back to a Savior who has literally given His life for you? Or as uh, Eugene Peterson writes in his paraphrase of the, of the Bible in Psalm 116, uh, what can I give back to God for all the blessings he's poured out on me? And the resounding answer of Scripture is that there's nothing that you can do to deserve or to repay God's incredible saving love. And so the psalmist answers, he just says, I'll lift high the cup of salvation, a toast to God. What does that look like according to Romans chapter 12 to, to lift high the cup of salvation and toast uh, the God of love who sent his son to die for us? The answer that Romans 12 gives is living your life as a sacrificial act of worship. And I want to take a few minutes to just explore that and maybe we'll find some explanation for what that means. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 is very much a turning point in the book of Romans. Uh, a lot of people like to say that Romans chapters 1 to 11 are theology. And then starting in chapter 12, Romans is uh, giving instruction about Christian living. How do you live as a Christian? But I might say, or you might say, that Romans chapters 1 to 11 is a description of the gift that Christ has given to us, and an explanation of why he gave it and what it means, what it means that he gave his life and why he had to do it. And so then, if you were searching, maybe if you were searching for a summary of that, right, I'm, I'm going to preach a, preach a message based on an understanding of 11 chapters that we didn't read this morning, but let me give you a cliff notes. I've uh, if, if I was looking for a cliff note, I might choose Romans 3, 23 to 25. It says there that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned, it says. Everyone has fallen short of God's intention. Everyone has fallen short of God's expectation. Everyone has fallen short of God's requirement. And what do we do? What can we do about it? What are the ways that we have devised for dealing with what is wrong in the world? And the Bible calls that sin. What do we do with sin? Uh, Eugene Peterson, who I previously quoted, and just full disclosure, or maybe an apology, read a wonderful biography of Eugene Peterson this week, and so he's all over the place in this sermon. <laughs> uh, Eugene says uh, that we try to deal with it through force, getting rid of what's wrong and, or trying to destroy uh, what's wrong in our lives or what's wrong in the world by trying to contain it or police it. Um, he says we try to deal with sin by education, Teaching people right from wrong and then hoping that when they know the difference, they'll choose to do what's right. We try to get rid of it by entertainment. 
distracting people from what is wrong in the world and giving them excitement and diversion, temporary vacations from the brokenness of the world. We, we try to deal with sin by economic improvement, providing incentives and opportunities to improve people's lives so that they will not out of despair or out of desperation or anger or retaliation make things a further mess than they already are. And none of these are bad ideas. In fact, many of them are really important things that people and Christians are doing in the world. Many of them do much good, but none of those examples are the way that God has determined to undo what's wrong in the world and what's wrong in our hearts. The scripture says, the book of Romans says that he has chosen sacrifice. He's chosen the way of the cross. At the cross, in Jesus' sacrifice, he takes our punishment and we are acquitted at the cross. This is what Romans 3.23 says, we're justified. At the cross, uh, Jesus' death pays our ransom and we are set free at the cross. We're redeemed. At the cross, Jesus' suffering absorbs God's anger against sin and the rebellion in the world and in our hearts. And we're shown his mercy. That's what that crazy word propitiation means. Jesus took care of God's anger against sin. And now Romans uh, chapter 12 begins uh, to turn, right? So uh, we have been shown God's mercy at the cross. And chapter 12 says, therefore, this is the NIV version, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of that mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is a funny thing. You might call it an oxymoron if you think about it, right? You're either living or you're a sacrifice. But most sacrifices don't continue living, right? They're, that's like the end of their living when they get sacrificed. The only sacrifice in history to actually die and then live again is Jesus. And Paul uh, says that this is how God determines to deal with sin in the world, and he's appealing to us. He says, he's imploring us that if we, if we understand what God has done in his mercy and, and Jesus' sacrifice, um, if we're really interested in answering the question, what can I do? give back to God for all of the mercy and all of the blessing that he's poured out on me. If you want to know what it looks like to raise high the glass of salvation and toast our God, uh, God's vehicle is Jesus' sacrifice. And then the primary way that Christians are called to live is not something different, right? Uh, we're, we haven't been saved so that we can be the uh, morality enforcement in the world. Uh, some of us will be protectors, but that's not what's going to save other people. Uh, the primary way Christians are called to live is not to try to educate our way to God, uh, though some of us will be teachers. Uh, the world will not know us by our theology report card. And we certainly have not been called to escape to claim Jesus as our ticket to heaven and take a vacation from reality until things straighten out. 
If God's mercy was revealed to us through the sacrifice of Jesus, then that is how the world will recognize it as well. Through sacrifice. Our sacrifice will tell the story of Christ's, God's mercy through Christ to the world. It's compelling that Paul is explicit at this moment. Uh, He says uh, that this is something that we will do with our bodies. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Why? Well, for one thing, it confronts the idea that God needs or requires our stuff to get things done. Although he incredibly chooses to work in the world through believers who give their time and their treasure and their talent. He doesn't need our gifts. He owns the, th- he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, but there's actually only one thing that we have that is our own, that we can truly give to God that isn't his already. And that's our hearts. That's our right to be in control of our lives, our right, my right to myself. The lordship of my life uh, is what I can give, and my body is the thing, the, the part of creation over which I have lordship, this little piece of stewardship that God has given me, the physical manifestation of who runs my life is what I do with my body. I can't help but think about one of the most tragically beautiful moments in my ministry career. Twelve years ago, last Friday, I was invited to join with the family of a young man. His name was Stephen. Stephen had grown up in our junior high ministry. He was now like a sophomore, a freshman or a sophomore in college. Um... And at that time, you know, freshman or sophomore in college, that's a time when a lot of people his age were um, using their bodies for the pursuit of all kinds of selfish pleasure or or using uh, recreational substances to do things to their bodies. Not everyone, but uh, Stephen had kind of, he was different. He had spent most of his college years using his body for acts of service, building houses in Mexico and whatnot, and enjoying athletics. But now I had been invited to join his family around his bed in an intensive care unit where he lay on life support after a skiing accident. Already dead, according to the brain doctor, Yet his body uh, being supported on life support was a perfect specimen of physical vitality. And we prayerfully and tearfully and excruciatingly pleaded with God and ultimately pleaded with God to give us the strength, give his parents the strength to do what Stephen actually had been very clearly and passionate about instructing them to do multiple times in his young life. And uh, in a flurry of activity over just a few hours after a few days of planning, Stephen Polster donated both of his lungs, both of his kidneys, and his liver and saved five other people's lives. 
was literally a living sacrifice. Is that what Paul's talking about? Maybe. Not many of us will get that sort of opportunity. But Paul is serious about how we use our bodies. This thing that God has given you to live in and to enjoy his creation in and worship in. Romans begins, the the book of Romans actually begins with a pretty explicit list of the things that people offer their bodies to in selfishness and in rebellion. And so it makes sense that now Paul is inviting us. Uh, He's telling us uh, that our response to God's mercy is something that we would do in the creation that God has given us, that it would be an all-encompassing response, not something that just lives in a spiritual lane in our lives. Again, Peterson says, he says, Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Why? Why is living a life of, uh, of sacrifice, a, a sacrificial life, the way to lift high the cup of salvation. Why is that the case? How is giving away your right to yourself a toast to God? Well, Paul says that this is our spiritual worship. That's our translation. And it's an interesting phrase in the original language because it's actually difficult to decide how we should translate it. There's two really good translations, and I'm convinced that uh, the Holy Spirit in his wisdom can write a, a verse and mean both. And so first, the, the first uh, translation or way to understand Paul's phrase there when he says an uh, act of spiritual worship uh, is uh, the way our translation, the ESV, put it. As an act of spiritual worship, uh, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's pretty interesting that Paul says that What you do with your body is a spiritual act. More about that in sex ed. But the Bible doesn't divide the physical from the spiritual the way that we like to. Uh, God made your body, and your body tells you a lot about what God created you for. Uh, And most significantly, we are told in the scriptures uh, what our purpose as image bearers of God was. Our confession uh, in this tradition, the Westminster Catechism, puts it like this. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, man or humanity's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is not about getting a ticket out of this place but about restoring us to the purpose for which we were put in this place in the first place, God's glory, his image. Another interesting interesting thing to think about is who it is that offers a sacrifice. The the, The passage says, offer your body as a spiritual sacrifice. Um, In the Old Testament, the, the, the person who offered the sacrifice was the priest. 
This is the person who knew the operations to, you know, take an animal and, and prepare it for sacrifice. The priest was the mediator. The, this is the go-between, right? The person that helps the people connect with the worship of God and uh, brings the, as it were, the presence of God into uh, the congregation in worship. It's compelling to think about our worship uh, the service that we do on a Sunday morning and also the personal worship that we engage in as followers of Christ as a priestly office. New Testament is clear that there is a priesthood of all believers. Something about being called into worship and us gathering to worship is designed to be a way to introduce others to God's mercy, to show forth the sacrifice of Christ. When believers gather, we say things like, God calls his people to pray. God uh, calls us together to hear his word and to worship. And we believe that part of that is acting as a, as a, in a priestly way for anybody who wants to walk in the door and ask questions or watch and see what it looks like to be image bearers and worship God through Christ. How many of us would confess that we only truly understood Christ's sacrifice and what it meant when we saw true worship or sacrificial service in somebody else. Every time we gather in this place to worship, it's for us. We've come to do what God made us to do, to glorify God and enjoy Him. We find fulfillment from God because uh, this is what he created us for, but it's also for a watching world. It's a priestly act designed to introduce people. Anyone who is willing to see and ask and inquire, introduce them to the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Christ. So what does that look like? Well, the rest of the book of Romans, recommended reading, there's a lot of specifics about, uh, you know, specific applications of what Offering your life as a living sacrifice to Christ might look like uh, living a life of gratitude for God's mercy. But what's really interesting is that the other way you, trans you can translate that phrase um, is a clue of what it looks like. So we've translated, we've read a translation that says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. But it could also be translated appropriately, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your only reasonable response. The only reasonable response to understanding what God has done. I once uh, watched this experiment. It was a show with my kids, and it's, it's a social experiment. I think it was designed to show the difference between, like, temperament between men and women, something like that. But the, the gist of the experiment was there was a man and a woman. They were separated by a curtain and presented with a table full of identical props. And uh, a timer was set to see who could finish the tasks first, and then... As they began, they rushed and they were to, to read this list of 10 instructions before proceeding. And uh, the, the first instruction was, read all 10 instructions before proceeding. Items two through nine included a battery of assignments and silly skills that included whipped cream and hula hoops and all kinds of crazy things that you were being told to do to yourself. And instruction number 10 said, 
disregard items two through nine, sit down, you're done. And about 40 seconds into this thing, 80% of the time, the woman was sitting quietly while the man was dousing himself with silly string and hula hooping and all manner of other sorts of things. Turns out that the experiment, to, you know, the, the objective or the reality of the experiment was not about uh, doing all of these crazy tasks or what was on the outside seemed to be the point. It was actually about successfully reading and following instructions. Understanding or misunderstanding the true nature of reality radically changed the way that people operated in the experiment. In scripture, broadly speaking, uh, wisdom is known as the knowledge of God's world and how it actually works, and then the knack for fitting yourself into it. Those are uh, Cornelius Plantinga's words. Now, knowing how God's world works and then fitting yourself into that uh, according to the way reality really is. Isn't that interesting? If the world really is as the scripture describes it, if in reality creation really does, it has lots of problems, but that the primary problem with what is wrong with the world is a sin problem. At the, at the core of the issue is that uh, we and creation are in rebellion against God. If, if in reality creation really does primarily have a sin problem, and if God's salvation and his solution for that problem came through sacrifice, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, not the use of force, not a new education initiative, not an escape plan, uh, then it's only rational for us to operate in the same way. It's irrational for us to think that we will find salvation and fulfillment from the use of force. It's, uh, education is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't fit with God's description of reality to think that we can educate ourselves and when we have enough knowledge, things will be fixed. It's irrational to keep depending, as it were, on outward solutions to a problem that actually is in uh, the core of our hearts, our sin, our rebellion against God. That's the foundational issue. And this is the, the gist of the next verse. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. Some of those outward things are good things, but working from the outside and that doesn't get to the core, only being transformed on the inside by the gospel. Living a life of gratitude for God's grace is not a project of following a bunch of outward requirements. And sometimes living a life of response to God's grace and Christ's sacrifice will, uh, won't look like the actions and the responses of those around us who are reading the situation only by what they see on the table. 
Because understanding how reality actually is is about understanding a God who created us in his image and loves us, who restored us through Christ. And so often if that is the reality that you understand, then our, your response, my response, our uh, life of self-sacrifice is going to look like we're following a totally different set of instructions than everybody around us. If reality revolves around my right to be Lord of my own life and com in command of my own body, then relationships will be utilitarian. I'll use people for what I need, manipulate to get what I want. But if I was designed to give away my rights as an act of worship, worship to a God who gave himself away for me, then relationships are venues for giving and serving and empowering someone else uh, for God's good and his glory. If the nature of reality is really about getting and using power, then we will forever be caught in a merry-go-round of dominance and oppression. But if I was made by the power of God's word, then power is intended to be used to create and to sustain and to give life to others, not to take it for ourselves. How do we know these things? How do we arrive at these conclusions? Romans suggests that the gospel shifts our understanding of the nature of reality rather than discerning by the way that seems good to us or acceptable to those around us or uh, completes our goals. Believers discern by the, way, by the way of God's will. As the passage says, whatever is good and acceptable, whatever is complete according to the description of Scripture and, the, and, and comparing this moment to Christ and His suffering. This is the opposite of changing outward behavior or appearance, hoping that it will have the power to transform us and give us purpose and meaning. Instead, we are changed on the inside by the reality of believing the gospel. And we respond in gratitude to that new reality. And the difference is transformational. Transformational.